Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 401 featuring Dylan Sisson, who is really incredible. He is His title is the marketing manager over at Pixar Animation Studios. Uh, what's cool about Dylan, Dylan and I actually have similar jobs for <laughs> different uh, competing renderers, right? So he does a lot of what I do as well uh, over at Pixar. Uh, and obviously we've been exchanging things. We met at THU, we actually we've met several times before, but uh, we met at THU and really sort of exchanged a lot of our, uh, our ideas together, which was really kind of refreshing and great. He's a super cool guy, really a lot of fun. Uh, and we talked a lot about rendering and about AI, uh, and it was really great conversation. And so I'm happy to share that with you. Kristen, what did you think of Dylan? Yeah, like you said, you discuss so many different topics, but um, he just covers everything from kind of Toy Story's Render Man beginnings in the 80s and to the way like how Disney is now using AI to generate visuals. Um, right. You guys kind of discuss everything from machine learning, good and bad of AI image generation, proving Blend's Law, um, to how Pixar pioneered USD and he yeah. kind of gives some good insight into if like you are starting off at AI um, you should just have a really good strong background in painting or 3D animation because it kind of will generate without your strong like without your strong vision it'll just generate but if you have a vision it's just a lot better um, right. for you as the artist um, and then you guys kind of leave us like you know uh, how in five years AI will directly affect the affect the visual effects industry and how not sure, but, um, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and, and Dylan was a great guy to talk about this. It's very interesting. He's really dived deep into a lot of AI image generation stuff that, uh, going on and, uh, he's looking into it as am I believe it or not. Uh, and we are actually, uh, you know, talking a lot about what that stuff is. Um, what's, uh, what's interesting is I'm actually trying to do, you know, la last year I did a whole series on, on what NFTs are and what does that mean and what does it imply to the industry? And so I'm trying to do a similar thing for a lot of the, uh, machine learning and AI tools out there. So, uh, if you guys have any ideas of other people you'd like to have on to discuss that, uh, please let me know. We know, uh, we'll, we'll uh, you know, labs at chaos.com is the best way to do that. But yeah, this is one, and we have several other ones that I'm going to do, uh, you know, in the coming weeks. So go be on the lookout for that. Probably through 2023, we'll continue to cover this because it is an important subject for sure. Okay. We've got a couple of quick announcements. Uh, you can find us out at chaos.com. First of all, uh, we are continuing to roll out uh, uh, V-Ray 6 for our other products. Uh, currently, we have it out for SketchUp. Uh, Revit is in beta right now, uh, but we also have it for App SDK. So go check those out at chaos.com. Uh, more of our products will be coming as well. The other big thing I want to announce is that we have created an official site for our Partners in Art program. Uh, it is at chaos.com slash partners in art, all one word, partners in art. Uh, and this is a great program that we do. And we're more officially supporting this in a lot of ways. What we do, we like to collaborate with people who have some great ideas and they need some help to execute their ideas. Uh, and we would love to continue to support you. So uh, all this information can be found at Partners in Art, but we'll support you with licenses. Obviously, there's some cloud credits and there's even some cash money that we can give you in order to support you. So let's, you know, we'd love to let you know about all that. So if you have a great idea and you need some help on it, uh, go look at uh, chaos.com slash partners in art, all one word, 
and uh, we'd love to have you participate. And I am on the member who's going to be looking at all these things, so I would love to hear your great ideas. Okay, we've got a couple of other events happening online. Kristen, what's going on online and in person, I believe? <laughs> yep. Uh, so you can find these out at chaos.com slash events. Uh, the first one will be November 15th, and this is an online one. It's Chaos Day um, India, and this will be the third edition. And then November 17th through 19th, we will be um, in China for SketchUp uh, China 3 design summit so again go to chaos.com slash events to find about these events <laughs> perfect great uh okay cool and uh if you guys uh want to know more about the podcast uh, where can they go you can go to facebook.com slash cg garage podcast or chaos.com slash cg garage or you can go to youtube.com slash chaos group tv Perfect. And if you guys have any other ideas, like I said, especially I'm looking right now for more, more, more key people in the machine learning side of things, especially anyone who can do a deep dive explainer on things for our general audience. I would love to know that. So go to labs at chaos.com. Love to hear your suggestions there. Uh, but for now, please enjoy episode number 401 with our good friend, Dylan Sisson. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. I think the funny, one of the things I remember is the, the funny time we first met is because I missed my flight at FMX. Right. And I was stuck in Stuttgart. And then uh, David, David Lauer. Yeah, David Lauer. David Lauer said, well, why don't you come with us to a beer festival? <laughs> and so I think that was the first time we met, right? Yeah, yeah, it was at Springfest in Stuttgart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we get to hang out and talk about you know, Renderman and, and V-Ray, which was kind of fun because I was like, that was a really fun conversation to talk about that. Yeah. But um, I want to know a little bit more, like you, you had your talk yesterday, which was great, but for, for the audience, like what, how, how did you get into what you're doing? Like, what was the thing that, that sort of got you into? Was it when you got that computer? Yeah, that's, it's, I think I got into it at the same time you did when you couldn't go to school to get into 3D. It was just kind of happening right so you had to be in the right place at the right time with the right kind of skill set right and at college when i at the end of college i took an internship at a place called fanographics in seattle and they were doing comics for like chris ware acne novelty library okay um dan Klaus, uh, a lot of famous underground com comics and i did a comic book back in the day making fun of um, or, or parody of understanding comics by Scott McCloud. Okay. You, you may know, yeah, you yeah. know that one. So mm -hmm. I, it was called filibusting comics. Right. And so that comic book got me a job animating on CD-ROMs in Seattle uh -huh. at a head place called Headbone Interactive. So what were, what was going on in CD-ROMs back in those days? What was it for? CD-ROMs were a way of, of, bringing a lot of content to your computer in an efficient way. Okay. And that was by getting a CD-ROM that had a 
all the storage space on it. Right. And so you could deliver animation and all sorts of stuff. And so we had these edutainment titles like Elroy King of the Jungle. Uh -huh. And I was doing animation on those, uh -huh. uh, 2D animation. And then the internet came along and kind of killed that, right? What were you using to animate back then? Macromedia Director. That's interesting. Because so yeah. you're the second person that brought up Macromedia, because Karen learned on Macromedia Director. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. It's, it's interesting because I learned there was a technique of sprite-based animation. Yep. And you could do kind of blasto animation. There were some weeks where I did myself an hour of animation in a week. Yeah. For for an entertainment title, right. and I was just really efficient on it. And I would do things like put put everything in silhouette so it looked good, but I didn't have to animate a mouth or anything like that because it was in silhouette. Right, so, right. So it made it super efficient. And it turned out a couple people left that company for another company, uh, which was making um, RPG games. Uh huh. And they were kind of Final Fantasy style. Right. Uh, games and so that place was called Crave Entertainment. We're working on a game called Shadow Madness, mm -hmm. and that was before I got on. And I heard from them what they were doing with these 3D software, and I went in there. I was like, I I want to do this too. Like, what are you doing? Like, they showed me Power Animator. Oh, they wow. showed me like articulating a character and animating a character, and I was like, wow, that that's way better than Macromedia Director. <laughs> yeah, and so. But it was hard to access. Like you couldn't have. It was hard to access. Yeah. I, they cost a lot of money, so I didn't. I didn't have access to one. I didn't have money to buy one. And then one day, one of my friends who had gone over the company, they said, "Well, um, we just somebody just left the company, so there's a spot open on our team mm -hmm. if you want to send in a reel." And I was like, "Okay, great, thanks. I'll I'll do that." I was like, "When should I send it in?" She was like, "Next Monday would be good." And it was Friday, right? And I didn't have a reel. I'd just been doing all this, all this animation and Macromedia Director, and I didn't right. have a reel. So I, I went home and I did a one and a half animated minute animated short that weekend in Macromedia Director, and just blasted it out, and did it with all my nice cross hatching, like in my personal style, right? Uh, above about it's called Bug Potted Plant. Okay. And I did that in one one weekend, and then I sent it in. Right. And they're like, come in for a job interview. And I was talked with them, thought it went pretty well. They're like, how long did it take you to animate that um, that short? And I, I didn't, I, I said three months. It took me three months to do that. <laughs> that's and, not and, true. And they said, that, that sounds about right. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say, I just did it this last weekend. You know, like you're cheating on like, like I was desperate. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, because they would have said, well, where's the rest of your animation if you can do one of these uh, yeah, each yeah. weekend? So, um, so, so I got started there and, uh, that's where I started learning about, I'd go to lunch and I'd read about NURBS surfaces and IK yep. handles and was just started soaking it all up. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. so you just kept, kept getting into that stuff, right? Yeah. And it was a kind of a process of, you know, I came in kind of from the art side and I liked the technical stuff. So the more I got into it, the more I was like, I like shading. Shading, procedural shaders are amazing. Right. I like lighting. Lighting's really interesting. I enjoy rendering stuff, and right. I just like the whole process. Right. And and then um, eventually I did another animated short, and um, my boss at the time was uh, uh, married to my future boss in the render band group. Okay. So yeah. Interesting. All right. So how how did that transition to 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 Pixar go? Um. 
it was uh, it was uh, interesting because when I joined Pixar, I joined in the Seattle office, which was you know four people at the bottom of Pike Place Market. Okay. And so if you've been to Pike Place Market, there's there's like the guys that are throwing fish yeah, back yeah. and forth. So we're, if you just walk down the stairs there, you pass like this wall of gum. You know, there's outside of the theater sports okay. place. And you could walk down the alley and just out of whiff of smelling distance of the gum, that's where our office was. Oh, wow. So it was like kind of a, just kind of seemed like a small mom and pop shop, right? Because right. there's four of us. Right. And, um, you know, just started working and doing doing a bunch of stuff for for um, for Render Man, doing um, making demo assets and but how did that work for you? I mean, you you were a programmer, right? So you were right. So what what group at, at Pixar did you go into? Like, what was your job description when you started? Right, right. Well, I was, I was doing customer support, so I'd support okay. people with install, installation stuff, and okay. uh, I would do demo things. And I was I was there to provide feedback on the outward facing tools at the time. Okay. So RenderMan development wasn't in Seattle. That's where we were making plugins for the external. Uh, um, there were plugins for external DCCs that weren't used at Pixar, okay. like mTOR, like, M-Tor, like Maya yeah. to render. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was there as sort of like, well, this works, this doesn't work. And I was the artist in residence that right. was testing the software, providing feedback, and then communicating to people at different studios, yep. like, this is what it does. And here's how to, here's, here's how to use it. Like, I, yep. I kicked the tires on this thing. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So All that's right. that's kind of what I was doing out, out of the box. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, Yeah. Like you and I were talking about, like that we had similar sort of backgrounds and and our responsibilities within the company. Right. <laughs> But you've been now at the company for 20 years, right? Yep. I started and I well, I just got my 20th anniversary award. Right. Um. But and because of the pandemic, now it's 23 and a half years. <laughs> But you so, just got it, right? Right. Okay. Wow. Right. All right. right. So, so you're 99 is what 99. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, okay, so, uh, and did you stay in the Seattle the whole time? Are you still there? Uh, I was in Seattle um, for a number of years until yeah. 2005. Okay. And then in 2005, I decided to move down and uh, take an opportunity in kind of the, the marketing side of RenderMan and okay. kind of headed, headed the marketing group for RenderMan and okay. moved to the main studio. Right. And I've been doing that ever, ever since, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So, uh, what is? I want to talk about. There was a lot of stuff that you talked about. It was interesting about obsolescence mm. of technology, or yep. when you learn something and then things become obsolete. So, worse. I mean, you mentioned the CD-ROM was like you're doing stuff for CD-ROMs, and then the internet came and just killed the need for CD-ROMs, yep. right? Yeah. So, what what are some of your thoughts on that obsolescence? Um, like. The longer that I stay in the industry, the more I, more perspective I think I have on it, uh-huh. and uh, especially like when I was talking on the talk yesterday, like just the idea of exponential growth and how that kind of is transforms our industry at different sorts of kind of breaks. Like right. you have enough compute power to do a certain thing at a certain time, and then all of a sudden, because of exponential growth, then you have more memory and more power, right. and you're you're able to do a whole new category of something that was impossible 10 years earlier. Sure. Yeah, so so kind of the obsolescence of, you know, if even if you look at the transition from RenderMan at the very beginning to where RenderMan is now, it's gone through 
number of different phases where it was originally a scanline renderer, became a hybrid renderer. Right. Um, and scanline renderer at the time was super advanced, super memory efficient, yeah. could handle a whole bunch of stuff. But once we had enough compute power, all of a sudden these algorithms that we knew about in the 80s <laughs> could be applied to production. Right. And there was a whole change that happened in the industry with physically based rendering. And we're seeing a lot of that happen again with AI just because we have a reached a new step where all of a sudden we can use it. Yeah. yeah. I want to get into your AI thoughts because I want to, you know, mention about our panel and everything else. But uh, tell them tell the story about like the Toy Story and how long it took to render and then the render time, the render time story. Right, was, right. Give us our render time story because that's a great right. one and I think people can appreciate that one. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really... And they didn't even know that, they, they planned when they would actually be able to do it, right? 1986? Yeah, and it was a, it was a testament to like, like everybody at Pixar and actually in ILM's computer graphics group where right. that all started with Ed and his whole team. Um, they saw 15 years in the future and said, we want to make an animated feature film. We can't do it today because we don't have the hardware it would cost billions, maybe trillions of dollars back then to, yep. to buy all that hardware. But they used Moore's Law to say, at some point, we will be able to render a feature film. And if we look at the exponential curve, we think that's going to happen in 1995. And they started planning for that. Right. And when Pixar was founded in 1986, uh, when Steve Jobs purchased, purchased it from George Lucas, the computer graphics group, they're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to make our feature film we can't until 1995, so let's sell the Pixar image computer. Right. So they did that for a little while. Then they released RenderMan, and all of a sudden that was being used in visual effects. So Jurassic Park came out in yep. 1993, and uh, Pixar did a bunch of commercials, and then kind of built out the tool set, kind of built out the pipeline that they would need, kind of added more features for, for rendering 3D. And then when 95 rolled around, they had Pixar's, they had Pixar's Toy Story in the pipe, right. and and released it right right when uh, hardware allowed them to do it, right? Which is which is mind boggling. Yeah. And um, one of the other data points you're you're talking about was that at the time yeah. of, for a feature film frame of Toy Story, I was talking with Tony Apodaca. He's estimated that because we didn't have an RPG group at the time, a right. render pipeline group that would gather all the metrics, right? It took about 5.5 hours to render a, a frame for on Toy average. Story. On average. Right. On average. And when they rolled out Toy Story 3, they re-rendered Toy Story and Toy Story 2 for stereoscopic. Uh -huh. And they rolled out all the old hardware, right? Right. And all the old SGIs and kind of dug them up for, from different places. Like, we had a bunch still in Seattle, so wow. a lot of those were like... You literally had to dust off the SGIs to get the data off, right? Well, yeah, to put on put on the old software because it only ran on those old machines. Right. And then we generated all the rib and sent that to the render farm. And the frames came back and they thought there was something wrong. And then they checked. They're like, the frames are fine. It just took about a minute for them to render. Right. In 2010. 2010, right. Yeah. And so, you know, that's Moore's Law. Right. And it's, 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 it's not a linear thing. It's like from five and a half hours to one minute, and if we render them today, if we project with Moore's Law, probably about a second. Now, is that most, because you were still, you had to obviously go back to your legacy system, were you still you're using the old RenderMan too? Oh, uh, we, we were using like 
the the old render man on the new farm. Yeah. New farm. So yeah. this is all just hardware. Yeah, more this all is all hardware related. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And you were saying that that you know it would be a minute of frame in 2010. Today, 12 years later, it'd probably be a second of frame, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if you just look at what compute is providing us, right. it's, it's really allowing us to do completely new things that were actually impossible just like five or 10 years ago. Right, right, interesting, interesting. Now, actually, here's another question. RenderMan was single-threaded back then. So were you using one core to do a frame and it still took a minute? Um, that's a good question, I, I believe so. Okay, I believe so. that still makes sense. I believe so. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, now. Now to go back to your other graph, right, <laughs> right? Right, right. So, so you said there's Moore's law, and then there's there's a corollary <laughs> to Moore's law, which is Blend's law, right? And Jim Blend said that uh, famously that uh, for feature film frames are always going to take the same amount of time to render, right? And if you look at if you look at the the data, it, he's he's more than right because they're taking more time to render now because. Right. Um, there's a there's a corollary to just having things render faster. There's also a need to put more stuff on the screen. Right. So render like at Pixar, we're really focused on stuff per pixel. We want to put as much stuff on the screen as possible, as much complex light transport, and we do that because we want to see new kinds of images and tell new kinds of stories. Right. So that's that's kind of what we're focused on. And Blinn's Law says, you know, like even though we can render Toy Story one and, right. and may, probably near real time at some point we're not going to be rendering on real time on our movies because we're going to keep adding more and more and more stuff right yeah so your render times now are what we're what, on that graph right tell you know is about what's how, what how many hours of frame are you looking at some of those things uh, usually the metric is if it can render overnight then it's ready for dailies the next day right and so um the final frame renders like i, I I think we're around 14 hours, I believe. Okay. And uh, one of the interesting, interesting um, things that we'll do with dailies, even, and that seems like a long time for for some people. Sure. Right. But but for for what we do at Pixar, we're adding like we're doing a lot of light transport, a lot of like a ray bounces. We're yep. doing complex things with air and volumes and all sorts of subsurface scattering stuff and. There's no pre-compute anymore. We all do that in one pass. Right. So, um, so that's 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 um, that's great. And then I was going to say one thing, and then I just it just uh, escaped me. The, the, the amount of time that it was rendering about 14 hours, throwing a bunch of stuff. We're going to get to the denoising because that's going to be the next step. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Oh, and for for what we're doing. Right now, um, hey, I'm podcasting, buddy. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> for for what we're what we're doing, like on Incredibles two, we do checkpointing, right? And so we'd checkpoint frames. So RenderMan would write out a partially converged frame at different intervals. Sure. So we would do dailies on partially converged frames and greenlight them with unfull convergence. Right. So we'd would be able to get these expensive computationally frames done for dailies right using checkpointing right and and um so there's there's strategies to to blinds law essentially is gated to rendering something overnight right yeah
as long as you can get it, as long as it's available in the morning, great, you'll have it. Yeah, yep. yeah. I did have, I did have an enormous shot on Ghost Rider that I was working on. It was the big bike transform thing, and it was the last shot I had to render, and I had like a week and a half left on the show. But it was so, I had to put ray tracing on it because no one liked the reflections. This is way back in the day. Mm, mm. So no one liked the reflection occlusion. So they wanted like real ray tracing with like one, and it just took like 30 hours of frame to render and it was a huge shot. So I just sat there and waited all week for it to render. <laughs> and so, but it was, it was interesting. It's like, and that, that was a point for me where I was like, I don't want to render shadow maps again. Like, yep. I don't want to do that anymore. But uh, but yeah, it's it's fascinating how that how that render time has happened. So, yep. um, and then the other thing, obviously, you, you and I got into is you you talked a little bit about uh, or you talked a lot about some of your interest in in AI art, shall we call it? Uh, but uh, we also had a panel on it that we discussed it some more. So, first of all, let's take your perspective on this and how. What do you think of it? What have you done with it? Where where, where is it going for you? Yeah, the uh, like this isn't something that we even talked about last year. Like, right. Th this just happened like in the last six months. So when whenever people are listening to it, like AI's probably already changed by by the time that people this, hear it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 And and so I got into it um, in May when I heard about Midjourney and I got into the beta program and um, I was just going to kick the wheels on it. I like. I like kicking wheels on new tech and just seeing seeing what it does. And right. I was I was kind of blown away by the images I'd get out of it. And I was ended up punking everybody I knew on Facebook by, you know, posting stuff that I generated with Mid Journey, pretending right. it was stuff that I was taking on the beach where I was at on uh, at the time. Right. And I found it really fun just to kind of iterate and curate these uh, images that were generated by the AI just by typing in, um, you know, strange artifact on dirty beach, right. and just kind of dialing in different weird stuff, and then posting that and being like, "What is this thing?" And and um, some people knew right away that it was Gan, and some people knew had no idea what it was. And right. So it was. Was that what was interesting? Like, so, like, so you know, was it more interesting to you that people were confused and their, their reactions to it, or was it like, or did you enjoy the process more than that? Because, oh, I was, I was just having fun with it. Yeah. So I was like, what, what am I going to do with it? Right. Um, I didn't have like a project or anything, so I was like, oh, I'll just, you know, just have some fun with it. Right. But when I started thinking about the applications of it, um, you know, as far as doing illustration, um, you know, I. I thought, well, maybe I can use it to ideate and uh, and generate ideas around, you know, different types of subjects and drawing. I did some tests of like, well, what if you use it for like seamless texture generation um, and got some really surprising results just by saying uh, repeating texture of, of uh, skulls and bugs, you know, right. gives you some pretty gave me some pretty interesting stuff right off the bat and I was like whoa this is this is going to probably revolutionize a lot of things that we 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 do in the pipeline as right. far as as 3D goes I mean if you just look at pattern generation if you start bringing AI into that the the implications there are, are tremendous and in in a good way as far as uh, uh, creating creative content I, I I feel like it's a great creative tool for artists right now so uh, 
It is. Uh, and, uh, well, I believe it can be, but there's a lot of people who have concerns about it. What are some of some of the concerns that you think people have about it? That's a good question. I, I think there's um, the most vocalized concern is like, will I lose my job? And I think in some ways, you know, it, you're in technology and probably you're going to lose your job. I, I know that I've been at several companies that have closed over the years. And, right. Um, this is the kind of technology that's potentially disruptive to different things. But I don't think all the jobs are going to go away. I don't think one day someone's going to show up at Pixar and there's like going to be five employees making, you know, one film a year. Right. You know? Um, I think Blinn's Law kind of says, I mean, maybe it's Blinn's Law that uh, we're just being around that environment at a studio where it seems like there's just going to be more work and more jobs. And this technology should be able to allow us to make more sophisticated, complicated things that um, are more interesting than stuff that we've done before because we have the power to iterate so much. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting idea obviously but i think that there's you know concern about like i've spent a lifetime learning how to do this thing and now someone's just typing it in and doing that differently so uh there the content's obviously very important but uh let's talk also a little bit about um well and just just to put a button button on that point that you yeah. just raised i think if somebody has been doing art their whole life if they go into an AI content, you know, creative content generation tool, right. they're going to have fundamentals where they can, you know, create an artistic stamp on it. Like right. if you look at Meat's work that he's doing in AI, like that looks like his work and yes. he's able to guide it towards that kind of vision that he already has in his head and right. his technical background. I don't think having that knowledge is somehow thrown away. I think it actually allows you to step into the realm of AI content generation and and actually have uh, you know your own internal guide to it. Otherwise you're just writing something like Smurf eating hot dog. Right. And and unless you have a clear artistic vision, you're just gonna get lost with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking back to, to Beeple, right? Mm, yeah. If you think about what Beeple did, he is very Beeple, but a lot of people like, I don't get it. And like, it's Trump as a thing. And it's like, that looks like it could be AI art. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know right, I mean? right. So it is kind of interesting to, because like, I want to, yeah, he's like, I want to see this. And then he just makes it. But he's mm -hmm. now you want to see this, you type it, but then you got to type it and be more descriptive. You're, there's actually work involved that's beyond just typing things in. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Okay, go, let's, let's go through a little bit of the process of how a GAN works and what, it, what the process is and then how, obviously, it can be used for other things like denoising. So, so explain a little bit of how a GAN works. So, um, like the general adversarial network has, has uh, one component of the network that is producing things and the other part of the network that is uh, saying yes or no to that thing in comparison to some kind of training database, right? Right. And so you just run that over and over and over again, and somehow it learns what this thing is or not. Maybe it's a picture of a cat. Right. And so you show, it shows a bunch of pictures of cats, and it's either right or wrong, and um, it trains itself to figure that out. And then you start doing that on a bunch of different levels, and 
um, my my understanding of it isn't incredibly technically deep, but that's my that's my um, kind of high level right. understanding of it. Right. So the other, you know, on the training side of things, it's here's the image you'll get and here's the image I expect. Here's the image you get, here's the image I expect, right? That's kind yeah. of the process that it goes through, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the, I think the thing that's, uh, that you can do is you can feed it, or it doesn't have to be an image, by the way, it can be anything, right? Mm -hmm. It can be, here's what the current situation is now, and here's what the weather is the day after. Right. And so do this over and over again, and I should be able to predict what tomorrow's weather is going to be, right? Right. That's the same idea, but you can do the same thing with an image. So you know, go back to denoising, right? So here's an image with noise and here's what it looks like when it's finally fully rendered. And you keep feeding that data, right? So that's mm. something that you guys did at Pixar, right? Oh, absolutely. With um, with the new AI denoiser, this is technology that came out of Disney Research in Zurich. Right. And, um, you know, we, we've we've had a denoiser that we've been using in at the Disney Studios. And that was really great for right. what was going on. Disney Research decided to implement a, a new denoiser that was using machine learning. Right. And they they basically rolled that out into production at ILM and Disney, WDAS, and uh, Pixar. And the first time we used it was Toy Story 4. Right. And they trained it on a number of different movies. And um, we wondered how much we'd have to train it for subsequent movies. And uh, we trained on Incredibles and Cars. Cars uh, and then... Uh, we haven't had to train it that much since. We've fed it some different kind of data sets for like depth of field, um, and we'll do something like a real low sampled render and a fully converged render and say, right. you know, figure this out. Yep. And um, we've, we've had a lot of success with it internally. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting because Chaos has a, a denoiser. Actually, we used a couple of denoisers. We use NVIDIA's denoiser, mm -hmm. which is an AI denoiser as yep. well. That's trained on different data, and then we have our own denoising. But it's denoising is like I've always said, like to me, it was cheating when I first right. saw it because you know I like the final grit because there was always a softness that happened in yep. the previous ones. So, the, does the AI help reduce that softness problem that was getting that was happening? Yeah, I, I think some some studios and some DPs at studios that we've talked to wouldn't use the denoiser because they wanted that real precise sharpness of a fully converged pixel, right? Right. And the denoiser would soften things, like especially in small detail, uh, like fur and hair and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, with the new AI denoiser, it preserves all that detail uh, in some kind of wacky way, um, like it's intelligent or something. Yeah. And... Um, uh, now those, you know, we, we've we've shown DPs products from all the denoisers in a finally fully converged image, and it's the fully converged image and the AI denoiser that pass the muster. The other ones don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but you also, in order, there's ways to help it, mm -hmm. right? So you can use the AOVs to mm -hmm. say, okay, here's an actual edge. So you don't have to guess where the edge is. We'll, we'll, we'll hint at where that edge is yep. with like normal maps and things like that, right? Yeah. Well, the, the AI denoiser and like our, our current denoiser, they they both rely on AOVs to denoise. So okay. they're, they're looking at all that information and that's where, that's how they can, you know, tell not to blur a texture or something right. because it's in the albedo. Right. Um, and, you know, the subsurface scattering 
oh, maybe it's noisy here. We'll clean that up. Right. And then that gets combined in, in the final like denoising process. Right. And um, with uh, the AI denoisers, just the same. It looks at all these different AOVs and it can, you know, make calculations just on, on one lobe, you know, right. and then clean that up. But for things like the hair and fur, like it does a really good job with that. And it also is able to, because they're doing multi-sampling as far as um, the denoising, uh, multi-resolution sampling, which um, as far as I understand it, reduces kind of these low frequency artifacts that would also be kind of endemic in the like animation. So the temporal stability between each frame. Right, so you well, use multiple frames to, to noise, to, to clock the noise across, right? Well, yeah, and then, then we use uh, the three frames before an image and the three frames after an image yep. and the image itself to run the denoiser, so it's temporally stable. Yeah, so. we do the same thing. Well, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a problem. It's like, because you get the flickering otherwise, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, all right, well, that's, that's, uh, that's really cool. Um, so, but that also means that your denoiser is a process that happens after. It's not a real-time process because you have to render everything first. Currently. Right. Currently. Um, some of the future plans involve bringing the denoiser into, into the brains of RenderMan. Okay. So then it can be used during the actual rendering process to kind of um, provide AI as far as the, the adaptive sampling goes. Right. And kind of learn as the instead of waiting till the very end, maybe we can inject that further in the process. Right. And um, we're looking at some technology for doing interactive denoising as well, which we've tested in some of the studios. Just early tests look pretty okay. good. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it used to be that we'd render with the denoiser maybe two, 256 samples. Right. Now we can render 32 samples. And yep. even when you render with one or four samples, you still get a good image. So if, if we can do that interactively, that's yeah, that's kind of cool. That's a win for us. Yeah, absolutely. So so uh, for for us in Vantage, we actually have multiple denoisers that you can pick from, mm. right? Because they don't always like certain situations that acts better in one denoiser or another denoiser. So have you guys noticed that too? That you have different situations for that. Oh, for sure. We've uh, we implemented the NVIDIA denoiser as well so oh, okay. for, for interactive rendering. Right, because uh, it's fast. Yeah, because it's fast. It's interactive. Right. So, uh, yeah, so that that can be great. And, and sometimes when you're working, that's you want to have it on. And sometimes when you're working, you, you don't. Right. So it just depends on what kind of operation. Yeah, sometimes you're doing. I actually like grainy images. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it depends on what. Yeah. Because you can, because it, if it's soft, you don't necessarily. You can't perceive the texture. Yeah, exactly. So it's, if you can see weird, the grain. It's weird how our eyes can see texture through grain, but not through blur. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, okay, and you mentioned there's some other things that you guys, or, or at least Disney Zurich is researching in terms of, of, of AI stuff, right? So what, what are some of the things that are, are being studied over there? Uh, there's a, they're studying a whole bunch of stuff, like some of the upscaling is really interesting for us. Yeah. Um, they're putting a lot of, uh, research into that. They're doing research into in-betweening. There's uh, research into things like even um, story narratives, like visualizing stories using AI, right. reading scripts and figuring out if it's hitting all the right metrics that we're, we're tracking for stories. Interesting. Um, some of the ideas of, 
of, you know, if, if you want to screen a film for a test audience, you know, traditionally we'd interview everyone when they came out and say, how'd you like the film? What was the funniest moment in the film? Now we can put a camera on the entire audience and uh -huh. use AI to look at each individual person in the audience. And if they're paying attention, if they're laughing, if they're sleeping, if they're looking at their phone during the film and track in real time, their actual response to each scene in the film. Right. Yeah. How do you think the audience is going to feel about that? <laughs> um, well, these are test audiences, so, right. so, so that's what they signed up for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. So we're not, we're not surreptitiously doing this to everybody <laughs> watching movies at home. True. I hope. True. Yeah. True. Yeah. True. True. I've always wondered about TVs with cameras in them. Yeah. Yeah. Because. Uh, I saw 1984. I know, but it's not just that. It's just that uh, it's specifically it's very it's a very Web two thing where, like, TVs are very cheap because now they sell you ads, mm -hmm. right? And if they can see your reaction, they'll sell you things based on your reactions yeah. and how you feel. So yeah, absolutely. It's a little scary. For me. Yeah, one one funny thing that happened at SIGGRAPH, I was in a meeting and uh -huh. I was talking to some people, and uh, we were just having a conversation about something, and I said, well. It was just an analogy. I said, well, it's like if a, a banana cost $1 and then you got 50 bananas for a dollar. Right. And then somebody's watch said, searching for bananas. <laughs> I was like, oops, I just think you bought some bananas. <laughs> it's just like, it's weird when they chime in and the, when, in yep. the wrong moments. <laughs> yes. You're like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Okay. All right. So 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 let's let's go back to... to uh, to the GAN system, right? So the training data that happens there. Yep. One of the things with training is obviously you have to feed it a whole bunch of data, yep. right? And uh, uh, Mark was talking about how there he his name appears in searches and on twi uh, Twitter like 50 times a day mm -hmm. because people are making AI art and using his name as the inspiration. So what are your thoughts on, on that process? Well, he, he was talking about that to me and kind of griping. And I was like, actually, that seems kind of like a raw deal for him if somebody posts something online that says, you know, Naughty Jesus by Mark Simonetti. Right. And people that don't know that it's Not, AI art, right. that they think it's actually his work, yeah. would think he's a bad artist. Yes. And he's trying to purposely build a brand for himself around his name. So, um you know, I, I think he has a legitimate uh, gripe there. Yeah. Uh, and it probably comes down to whoever's posting that should be careful to explicitly say that this is not Mark. This, yeah, this is not him. Right. This is not his work. So um, I, I think that's an interesting case I hadn't thought about before. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think that, I mean, from a, from a, I guess, a sociological point of view or, or, or what what's the way to deal with that? Do you think the the way could be to try to create legislation to do that? Technology does not do well when you try to legislate it. Like it's very no. hard to legislate it, right? Yeah. Well, I also think that like right now we we can't just like say create a piece of work and then say it's by somebody else. Like that's right. still not. I, I, We've I, never had that. Yeah. You know that's not still not a cool thing to do. So I think when people. There's probably a certain amount of etiquette that people need to adhere to, I would guess, when they're using right. somebody as an inspiration for, for a piece of work. They shouldn't say it's by this person. They should be right. 
and they should be like in the style and all apologies to Mark Simonetti, right. you know, right. with for my naughty Jesus image, right. you know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's right. I think that, you know, this is like you said, this is all so new that the person who posted that didn't even think about the fact that Mark Simonetti is going to see that and go, what the fuck? <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah. Like, because like, in, in their mind, he might just be a style. Right. Right. Um, and he's actually a real, real guy and a real artist that's trying to build his brand around sure. his, his name and his art. Because it's interesting. Because I did, you know, I just sort of was goofing around with AI stuff, as a lot of people are, obviously. Uh, and I had just done a podcast with Bill Plimpton, mm. right? And so I said, portrait of CG Garage host uh, uh, drawn by Bill Plimpton. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it came up with some interesting things. Were they good? They were definitely, they looked like they style. They were not that great, because I think it was confused about some other things. Uh -huh. But it definitely had the paper that it uh -huh. like, looks like. There's a, there's a certain pencil style that he does. It tried to put his signature in there. Wow. It failed at it, obviously, mm -hmm. badly. Uh, yeah, I noticed like when you did your, your artifacts in the Time Magazine right. thing, it tries to write Time Magazine, doesn't... Well, the New Yorker. New Yorker. New Yorker. Sometimes it was uh, New New Yorker yeah. or <laughs> New, New Yorkro and like just, it, it does, can't spell. Yeah, because it doesn't understand letters. It understands shapes mm -hmm. and colors and contrast, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I had uh, I was very curious about that. But yeah, this is something that I think is interesting. We think I think that there's might be a, an etiquette issue that people need to be thinking about, right? Right, and I think if I mean if you're an experienced artist, like. But I never posted the Bill Plimpton one. I was just curious to see what it would look like. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, that, that sounds cool. Um, like Mark likes AI, like he's using it for his own ideation. Right. And I, I think, and he's not scared of it. Like he, he just has a beef with people that are like, like diluting his brand, I guess. Right. right? Yeah. So that's, that's his problem with it. It's with the people, not with, with AI. And that, and that was actually another part of my talk is that while we're experiencing exponential growth in technology, humans haven't involved at all. Like we're right. still the, the same things that we were before and right. we could we can't handle the stuff that was happening 10 years ago and now we have all this new stuff that that we're toolbox of things that we can get in trouble with sure yeah so sure. I, I think in some ways getting all the images out there and having everyone see the images trains humans like trains us as to recognizing what's this going what's going on so people don't get fooled that much right yeah and that's kind of part of what i was doing with my Facebook thing when I was punking people, I was like, "Hey, look, look, this this actually isn't real, right? You know that this is a new. I was like, this is a new thing, and uh, this is how it's working, right? Just so people could be like, oh, I I didn't realize that this was. Yeah, happening. I mean, education is the best thing, right? So yeah. I think you know when when all those deep fakes things were happening and Jordan Peele was doing yep. Obama, yep. he's doing that to show people, hey, this is possible. Just so you know, don't trust everything you see. Right? That seems super valuable these days. That does yeah. seem super valuable. Yeah. So I think educating people about it is a good thing. Also educating people like, hey, instead of saying this, say this. And that would be the more ethical thing to do because that person may not realize that. It's like, oh, I shouldn't do that. Right? Yep. But here's another thing that's interesting. Yep. So I have my, um, uh, my other podcast, Martini Giant, and we were going to do the show Fight Club. So I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, because I want, I want Brad Pitt uh, in, you know, uh, drinking a martini shirtless, right? So I put, <laughs> right. put that in there, right. Right? right? And 
I got a uh, mid journey said, Nope, can't use the term shirtless. Oh, <laughs> right. Uh -huh. So it's a banned word. Right, right. Which, okay, that, that, it was the first time I got it. I was like, oh, well, yeah, of course, I understand why it's a banned word. But then I started thinking, it's like, so they do have some. They can control. They can control the language. Yeah, they, they could say, don't use this celebrity or don't use right. this artist or, or, or whatnot. Yeah, so they do have so. that ability. However, a lot of these engines are free and you can get the whole thing, run it locally, mm -hmm. right? And don't have to go onto their system. Is that so? then you can do whatever you want. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, what are the perils that you think, besides some of the things we've already discussed, are there other perils that you think are involved in this? I mean, I think the, the perils are between our ears, right? It's the human it's, element, It's the human right? element, yeah. our, our, It's our brain, it's what, what we're thinking, and I think education's the, the best way to, to approach that as well. Right. Um, but certainly, there's going to be a lot of trash and garbage that people are going to make with these tools, right? They are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's that's just kind of the, the human thing. I, I don't know how to stop that. So I'm, 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 my kind of focus is like, you know, what does this enable for artists that are individuals? What does this allow like studios? Uh, some studios, smaller studios can punch up. Like what, what are the cool things that people are going to be doing? What are the cool kids going to be doing? I think there's always going to be a, a certain amount of trash. I think one of the counter arguments to um, to that too is that it's not necessarily bad for people just to be making images. Like if it keeps them out of QAnon, if it keeps them out of doing like some crazy other stuff, there's there's worse hobbies in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Art is not so bad. Yeah, art is art is. Yeah, it could be worse. Could be worse. Could, could be, be worse. a lot worse. Could be a lot worse. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay. So we all started with crappy art and then we got better. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. So another thing that's interesting, I was just thinking about it, is uh, 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 Jeff Muddle, who uh, used to be uh, the owner of CG Architect, which now is a part of Chaos. Uh, Lon has now taken over some of that, but he had developed an AI because there is the CG Architect Awards that was happening. And and they also has their gallery, et cetera. So he created, there's so many images that, that get flooded in. He created an AI to help curate the oh, images. Interesting. And he's been testing it, you know, like he'll look at all the images, like, and you'll see how far they rank. It's like, yep, it's and it's like 98% accurate of what he would say would, would be cool and helps curate the art for him. Oh, interesting. What, what kind of, what are the criteria? I don't, I think the criteria is he, it's just simple, simple GAN idea where he's like, you know, here's what I consider a good image, here's what I consider a bad image, mm -hmm. here's a good image. And then so they understand that. And so when you feed that, it's like, which one, what's the score? And it gives it a level score. Right. So it gives basically each image and then a score to each image. Right. And then it just learned from years and years and years of art, of architectural awards and all this other stuff. It just learned from it and then it helped it. And it's pretty good, mm. right? Yeah. So my, what I'd be curious is, if someone could use an AI fighting a curator mm -hmm. to find till it gets to what it says is a good image, and then automatically NFT that thing and put it up on the market. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like the entire system that where you just create a system that curates itself and puts it up on the market. <laughs> 
<laughs> that that would be that'd be wacky. Yeah. That'd be wild though, right? Yeah, that'd be wild, yeah. 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 I, I think someone might even buy those things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, first AI NFT artist. Yeah. Yeah, but but go. no human intervention. Yeah. The entire thing's a machine, an art making machine. Could be interesting. That would be. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, go ahead. And Nvidia's using AI on those GPUs to design better GPUs. So yes. So that's there's a nice meta meta thing there too. Yeah, yeah. and and then you guys, you know, a lot of well, a lot of vendors are also looking at AI to create more efficient code. <laughs> yep. Right. Yep. So uh, so yeah, that's also an interesting thing. Uh, but I, you're right. I like we're, this isn't going away. We're not going to be able to to. We can't put the, the thing back in the bottle. Yeah, no. it's done. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but remember the other thing I always like to, to remind people is that uh, a lot of these systems, especially machine learning, are learning based on things that already exist. So right. things that don't exist, it doesn't know about, right? And so a lot of times things that are interesting or creative or uh, are, are things that are, are new, are, uh, we wouldn't be able to come up with that naturally speaking, or through that system. So, and then you mentioned specifically like, oh, for every movie we create, we want to make it new. Right. <laughs> so you can't make a story story five, six, seven, all through just learning what one, two, three, four. No, <laughs> no, no, no. no that, that probably wouldn't work. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting because if you if you look at movies, if you look at like Toy Story or Alien or whatnot, movies kind of reflect the zeitgeist of the time back at the society in a lot of ways. And um, I, I think it takes a visionary director to kind of do that and pull it off. So at least a good story, right? You know, um, and and and. And I, I guess I, I'm, I'm saying humans are able to do that and computers are not. I think one of the things that I was also talking about yesterday is why people are more anxious about um, this AI art than other applications of AI is that arts always seem like the human domain. Like we're, that's what makes us human is that we have the ability to express emotions in these different ways. And all sure. of a sudden, here's AI that's generating this stuff. Right. And I think be behind the, will I lose my job? There's this general anxiety of like, what, what does it mean to be human? Like, what, what, what is it doing? Like, yeah. is, is it creative or what it's more creative than me? What, what is happening? Right. Like, I right, think right. there's that, that's kind of the first inkling that these guys are doing something that we don't understand. Yeah. 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 I think, I think you're right. I do. I found a meme. Uh, I worked on iRobot. And I mm. found a meme from the interrogation scene where he's interrogating the robot. It's like, it's like, you know, uh, robots can be more human. It's like, can a robot create a beautiful piece of art? He says, and then you see the next frame was the guy who won the competition. <laughs> and then he looks back at Will Smith. He says, can you? Because <laughs> Will Smith obviously can't do that. And I thought it was, I was like, yep, yep. <laughs> timing yeah. uh so yes that's interesting yeah that's uh, funny. <laughs> it is very funny uh but yeah it's so 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 that's that's kind of thing but i think one of the things that became interesting for me also to think about a lot of the people who were concerned that you know this is thu 
is, is the younger students who are like, I'm trying to get a job mm -hmm. and an entry level job or whatever it is, and I'm going to be replaced by an AI, mm -hmm. right? And that's a little scary for them, right? Mm -hmm. But I do remember when you and I were, you know, younger kids and we were coming in and people were like, you're cheating with this global illumination, you know? Yeah. And yeah. like, so the younger ones were the ones who were coming in with new ideas and new tools. What do you think are the opportunities for young people to look into? Like, what if you're, say, you're a young person and you should embrace AI and here's what you should do to make that part of your career? Like, yeah, I think the opportunities right now for like individual artists and uh, people starting out in the industry are, I mean, the, there's, there's so many less limits and more possibilities than there were when I was starting out. And I thought, you know, when I just got into 3D, I thought, this is amazing. Like, this is an IK handle? Like, I was, right. I was so just blown away by all the stuff that I could do. Right. And in the last five years, there's been a bunch of advancements, not just in AI, but all across the industries with hardware, like with VR headsets and all that good yeah. stuff, which I've jumped into. Sure. And I've fully embraced that stuff. And I've been printing out stuff and... 3D and metal and right. um, just having fun with it, basically. But as an individual artist, it's not like you just can, you can think beyond just doing concept art. You can think about creating your own brand for your own self and your own vision of what you think art should be for yourself and express yourself through concept art, through, um, through you designing your own products, printing out your own, 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 you know, you can design your own whatever you want now. right and and there's so much opportunity i think for someone to come in and really disrupt how we think about these these roles that we've had so i'm sure there's going to be a couple of renaissance artists that come and start just blowing things out of the water and showing that you know it's not just this the small thing such as concept art but it can be a lot of different things what if you start taking your concept art and ai allows you to start generating all sorts of story ideas or different types of animation or different types of products like it it seems like it's a real real great time for being a creator and especially as somebody starting out ai i think if you get a strong fundamental background in some kind of you know like painting or even a traditional skill like uh, 3d animation right like that's going to transfer over into your uh, into your exploration of ai I right. think if you just jump into AI, you're going to be in the position where you're just generating stuff without a real kind of solid foundation. But if you have a vision when you go into it, it's like when you work in 3D, you have to have vision when you go in. Right. It's kind of the same thing. So I, I think it's a really exciting time. But we also grew up in the industry when things were chaotic and things were, you know, companies were collapsing all the time. And, right. Um, you know, that's okay. Like it's, we're 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 all gonna show up at another company doing other stuff yep. because we we like the technology and art. So I, I think it's a really exciting time. Yeah, you. I guess you said this last night. I think it's like you signed up to be working with technology, so you have to be ready for it to be obsolete, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, this is this is the ride that we're uh, we're on, and you know, buckle up and enjoy it. Right. Like, there's a lot of great things about working with technology. One of those isn't security and stability right. like if you want if you want that you can there's a lot of professions that provide that but their conventions aren't as much fun right and uh they don't they don't get to be on the cutting edge of of 
whatever's coming next. Right. Yeah, it would be like saying, I, you know, I learned how to text message on a flip phone. Right. <laughs> right. 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 And I got really, really good at it. And I know people who are really good at doing that. That's not necessary. That's a skill that's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The skill's gone. The skill's gone. Yeah. So it's interesting. Okay, just yeah. to, to put that out there. Okay. Now, let's go. The final thing is let's go into rendering, right? So okay. for a long time, you know, we said we started with rasterized rendering. Ray tracing actually preceded it, but it wasn't way too slow. So rasterized rendering came along as a viable solution to yep. render, right? And rasterized rendering still happens today it's mostly used in, in real time so unreal unity is all rasterized but uh or mostly rasterized uh but uh but then ray tracing you know to us we we're like no that's the ultimate physical base render right that is the solution that we we know is true lighting in terms of ray tracing and what it is uh but i'm looking at <laughs> you know some of the stuff that the you know i want to say good ai artists but artists that are using ai and like huh you know, doing some interesting things like what you are doing or Meets is doing, those might as well be renderings. And there's no ray tracing involved in it, but it's yep. creating shadows, it's creating reflections, it's creating everything. Yep. What are your thoughts on the idea of, is are we still just waiting for hardware to get faster to ray trace better? Or do you think at some point we're gonna say, why don't we just replace all of rendering with a Jan system? No, that's a really interesting question. Um, and thinking about how AI is going to affect like our industry directly, you know, right. it's probably will in five years. Yes. And, and um, it's not exactly clear how it will. I know that um, there's even, you know, Disney research has, has implemented AI path, path guiding for volumes, complex volumes. Right. And so some of that is happening kind of piecemeal. Maybe we'll have those little solutions. Right. I think we saw some solutions where people are like modeling a room and then running that through stable diffusion and yep. they're like, you know, the boxes are turning into like, you know, Baroque furniture and right. like just crazy stuff. That's not temporally stable. Right. Um, so that's, that's one of the issues, but, um, it's going to be really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, um, there was a guy named Andrew Maximov and he created, uh, Promethean AI was this thing mm. called, and it was basically it runs through Unreal, but it's it's basically an AI uh, virtual art department. Right. So he says, "Make me an '80s kids bedroom," and uh -huh. it just it has a bunch of elements, like a bunch of you know uh, models already. So it's a huge library of content, right? And it'll just like, oh, he needs this bed, he needs this thing, this poster here, and you know this video game and like and so it just created then you can like oh yeah move the door here and then it rearranges the whole furniture based on moving the door mm -hmm. so that's kind of interesting too absolutely and i think i think you know we, we know that if something's in feature film it needs to be directable like if you put right. something on the screen you just can't have it just happen like if you need to be able to control it and dial sure. it in if the director wants to and right now ai is like the AR art generation isn't doing that, but you can imagine, um, you know, feeding the USD pipeline with a bunch of variants that were created by AI, right? right? And then all of a sudden you have, you know, you could just, instead of creating those variants yourself, like we do today, right. we could just have the AI do it and then use our pipe that we have to handle like giant complexity with USD, just funnel it right into uh, the shots in right. our same pipeline. So, 
it seems like there's a lot of fun, fun applications. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. For sure. But, uh, and just specifically with rendering, like it's it's very interesting to think about, even with our like our kind of stylized implementation of uh, you know lines and hatching and yep. display filters. We could write a filter that was was using AI to create some kind of effect, like line work, perhaps, or, right. or different sorts of things, uh, as long as it's temporally stable. As long as it's temporary. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. But I think it's really, uh, that's really cool. Um, um, okay, I want to change subject a little as we get to the end, because okay. I think I want to put it in there. Is You mentioned USD, so let's talk about USD yep. for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Chaos has embraced USD. A lot of people have embraced USD. Definitely our customers, like that's the number one thing of the last two years, or at least the last two years that people have been talking about. What, uh, what, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on it? Like, how do you think it's, it's gonna help? Yeah, I think, I think our industry in, in a lot of ways, you know, wants to kind of band together around certain things so we don't have to reinvent it every time for every studio and every different like vendor like we we want to have technology that we can share and that becomes a standard right and usd is something that was developed at pixar to handle the complexity of creating giant shots not only just renting them and accessing them fast but mm -hmm. also allowing uh, people to collaborate on them at the same time in all different departments right and so now that pixar's kind of developed that idea Pixar wanted to open source that for the whole community so everyone would have access to that. That benefits the community and also benefits Pixar because then any vendor, any studio can can implement tools based on top of that USD and we can have a community that that doesn't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Right. Yeah. But but it's it's the thing that I think is important, you know, for 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 me it was the concern is that you know, you create a system that's integral but then you don't allow anyone else to sort of come into it. You create the walled garden problem, right? Mm. So USD sort of is the anti-walled garden. It's like you right. guys are really... And so uh, what is the philosophy behind that? Like, you know, oh, no, if, if everyone implements USD, they can, and, and they can move on and do this, that. We're, there's always this fear of, like, if it becomes open source, it's an excuse, or if it becomes an open standard, it's an excuse for people to move away from my platform. Yeah, it, I think... I think the 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 some of the tensions with USD is just making sure that it doesn't get pulled in too much in one direction or another direction. So um, you know, there's a lot of big stakeholders now in USD, and they have their own ideas with it. And so, getting everyone on the same page and saying, "Hey, let's keep it universal. You know, right. let's not like have universal flavor B and C and D." Right. And so, it's having those kind of those conversations with everyone and developing developing it in the future so everyone can enjoy it and keep it kind of a universal standard and you know because we have a lot of big stakeholders that have their their own agendas with it right and like nvidia for example for, for yeah. example yeah. yeah and and you know they they have uh, their roadmap and yeah. we just need to make sure that their roadmap is aligned with our roadmap and that it's going down the same generalish road, right? You know? And I think one of the nice things that we've seen just in the last year is Disney's said, "Okay, USD is really important, and we're going to bring on probably about twenty-five people just for the USD team across the entire studio." 
And that's going to allow us to work with all the stakeholders and make sure that it's going in the right way. Because, you know, it's it's hard enough, as you know, like, you know, trying to release a, a renderer and to coincide with a, a DCC right. and, and their roadmap. Right. And then you add USD to that same mix and that schedule. And then you have a fairly complicated problem that you're trying to tease out. But right. it, it really, it really, um, I think it comes down to like collaborating on it together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's really interesting that Disney is like, okay, we're going to make sure this is done. But there's also, is it the Academy standard? What's the, I'm blanking on a name. Oh, yeah. It's um, the Academy. Yeah. It's part of the Academy. Yeah. That they're trying yep. to basically... Yep. Re- I don't want to say regulate, but at least make sure that everyone's playing fair in the open source world. Yep. Uh, is USD part of that as well? Um, it's it's not yet. Okay. And that's just because um, I I think that Pixar is just really vested in um, you know kind of shepherding it for now. Okay. And is invested in it to. Um, to the full extent that we can be, I guess. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I know a lot of DCCs, you know, were more specifically like, you know, like side effects is really invested in USD and they built the whole Solaris thing. It's become yep. massively demanded now across the industry. So I'm very excited about uh, about USD myself. So thank you, Pixar, for putting it out there. I feel the same way when I was at DD and ILM put out EXR. I was like, thank you, ILM. Yep, 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 <laughs> you know? Absolutely, yeah. And so I think those are, I think those are really important and big things. So I think it's good that we think and talk as a community and talk about these things. And the fact that, you know, you and I are sitting here trying to solve similar problems, let's yep. just do it once. <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly. Yep. So it's awesome. Cool. Uh, cool. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. Thank it's you. awesome having you thank on. Thank you, Chris. We'll have to hang out some more. We have a couple more days here, so it'll be awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Take care.